0: You would, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and today we pick up back where we left off, or at least I left off, in the study of Jesus' sermon on the Mount. And uh, after being out for two weeks, and I trust that you were blessed by the preaching of uh, Nathan Milliken and then. Uh, Dr. Williams, last Sunday, I get the joy of tackling the easy subject of divorce uh, as the text lands for us this morning, but um, I trust that as we dive in, and, and I pray that the Lord will be with me as I seek to expound this faithfully, no matter who you are or what you have experienced, that you may experience the life of Christ and his teaching to us. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5. We'll just cover verses 31 through 32. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These words in and of themselves are grappling. They're startling. I really don't need to even introduce them to get your attention this morning. The subject of marriage and divorce touches on one of the most vulnerable and intimate areas of our life. And this really includes all of us, whether you're single, married, married, perhaps divorced, (laughs) widowed. And I'm well aware that this subject can stir up a range of emotions depending on your own life experience. And consequently, this this is a topic that is rather controversial, but this is one of the reasons why we give ourselves to the the normal diet of working verse by verse, book by book through the Scripture, because there are matters about which we would not want to take on, but that God wants us to, wants to speak into our lives. And, and this is certainly one of those. And as we consider, as followers of Jesus Christ and those who have submitted ourselves under his lordship, we, we recognize that there is no area in life which does not fall under Christ's reign, God and his sovereign rule. And on that note, it's my aim this morning to show us Christ's lordship, even in the area of marriage and, and the negative side, divorce, I want you to see that his lordship in all areas, including this one, is life-giving. It's life-giving. That Jesus' burden, even the word that he speaks here in these two verses, is light. And that all who come to him will find the rest. Remember this section of Matthew and is Jesus' exposition, if you will, his preaching, the summary of his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. I don't know too many itinerant preachers who go around and pack a stadium and says, and today we will share the gospel by addressing the matter of divorce, but Jesus did. He did left no rock unturned. And in these Teachings, this summary of Jesus' life and teaching, he is calling people to a wholesale following of him so that you may experience the blessedness and happiness of being a child of God, that you may experience the blessedness of his reign as a citizen of his kingdom. In other words, Jesus is showing us a way of living that aligns with his kingdom and the eternal life which comes from him. Come with me and I am walking you down the path of life and wholeness and peace and harmony. This is the good news of those, for those who come to Jesus. Therefore this morning it's my prayer that we would see the beauty and the life-giving character of Christ in the institution of marriage. And in so doing, that others who, who, who watch us, who view us, that they too would see the unwavering faithfulness, mercy, and love, which only comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. And to this end, I want us to look at, at three things this morning. Number one, the bond of marriage. Two, the brokenness of marriage. And three, the beauty of marriage. Let's consider the first, the bond of marriage. Well, as or has been the case with each of these sections, uh, really beginning uh, with um, anger in verse 21, lust in verse 27, and now divorce, Jesus has been combating false ideas that are commonplace amongst the Jewish people at this time. He's, he's combating false interpretations, if you will, of God's instruction which has been given through the law of Moses. He's not contradicting what Moses said, but he is correcting the wrong interpretations of what Moses has said. And the, the interpretations that have been given have been life-stealing. They have been life-destroying. And Jesus Is here to fulfill the law and give life to all who will hear. Each time Jesus contrasts, and you can see that in verse 31, what you have heard that has been said. And then with authority he says, but I say to you. What powerful words. You have heard others say, but I say to you. He speaks as one with authority because he is the one in whom all things have found their fulfillment, including the law and the prophets. And as we will soon see, my prayers today, we'll see that marriage even points to him. In verse 31, he's referring to the Jewish teaching of divorce, which was uh, 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 um, based upon Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. That's really the only general statement in, in, in the book of Moses on divorce. There's some stipulations about the priests and Leviticus and Numbers. But as for the congregation as a whole, this is the only statement that we have. And essentially, this is what Moses was instructing. Moses was giving stipulations for divorce, actually to, to restrain it. Warnings, in a sense, stipulations so that one would not enter into it too hastily. And here's basically it in a nutshell. If a husband discovers some indecency in his wife and he files for divorce, he releases her, he gives her a certificate of divorce, then she goes and marries another. You will never get her back. That's that's the end. Even if the husband that she she married to dies and she's released, she can marry somebody else but never you. That's that's the gist of it. And so the warning was, do not enter to this hastily. That's, That's the intent of Moses. However, there were two schools of thought in how to understand this passage. Particularly that phrase, if a husband finds indecency with his wife. What does that mean? There were two schools, one on a more uh, conservative nature, and this is actually more closely aligned with what Jesus says, although not the same, and I'll point it out. It's understood to be in in the realm of sexual immorality. If you were to discover that your wife has been sexually unfaithful before or during the marriage, well, then that would be grounds for filing for divorce you, you may think about uh, this from joseph's perspective we, we saw this at the very beginning of the gospel now obviously joseph had to be taught that his wife was conceived by the holy spirit and not another man but when he first hears that his wife-to-be is pregnant he knows that wasn't from me and so what does the scripture tells us that he sought he was a just man and he sought to divorce her quietly So the expectation was, it was not just that it was permissible, but that you must divorce. And this is going to be something that's very different from Jesus' view. Another school of thought, which was a more liberal view and was the mainstream at this time, taught that divorce is permissible, required, if the husband finds any flaw in his wife that he is just not satisfied with. There's one notable example that I came across in in some of the rabbinic documents where there are interpretations on how to handle certain situations. And on this matter, an example was given of a wife who spoils her husband's meal. Goodness. Now if you turn to Matthew 19, let's go over there. Jesus addresses this matter in, in a little bit more extended fashion. Matthew chapter 19, really beginning in verse 3, you'll see the Pharisees come and ask Jesus a question, and we find this is their view. This was the typical view of the religious leaders. And so with that context in mind, you can begin to see that Jesus, Jesus is actually coming to protect women in his, in his teaching on marriage and divorce. But look in verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, note just a side comment, that word tested, they came up to him and tested, is the same phrase when Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan comes to test Jesus. Matthew's tipping us off on what team they're on. And Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. And notice their question. I mean, this is appalling. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You see it right there? You see that broad view? And they would be, hey, that's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24. If a husband finds indecency, well, what is indecency? Whatever the husband deems. Isn't that the truth, Jesus? And they're actually trying to start a war, trying to split him. They know there's differing views. Which side are you on, Jesus? But Jesus goes to the heart of the law, which is what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's probably why we only get two verses here is because Matthew expounds upon it later. And so I think there's liberty to do so. And Jesus is is expounding the true intent of the law. This this is what Moses meant. but, But Jesus goes even further. He begins to show God's true intent from the beginning, which is the law of Moses. Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. And here in Matthew 19, 4 and 5, he cites Genesis 127 and 224. We'll just read Jesus' words. And Jesus answered them, verse 4. I love that. It's like, you're the religious leaders. Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. So what Jesus is saying here is if you truly want to understand what God thinks about divorce, then you need to truly understand what God says about marriage. You need to understand marriage before you can understand divorce. And from the lips of Jesus, we hear the origin, the purpose, and the permanence of the marriage covenant. First, we learn that marriage was created by God himself. And he sets the terms. And and marriage, as we see in Jesus is is, is reiterating, is that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. One theologian aptly states... Reflecting on this passage, if if God had supremely intended solitary life, God would have created humans one by one. If God had intended polygamous life, God would have created one man and several women. If God had intended homosexual life, God would have made two men or two women. But that God intended monogamous heterosexual life was shown by God's creation of one man and one woman. See, creation, the creation account is the positive of what God's design and intention was for creation. It sets the parameters here specifically of marriage and what it is. And it secondly teaches us what makes a marriage. Have you ever thought about that? What, what deems someone really married some have erroneously taught that marriage is is merely sexual intercourse and so if uh maybe that that was something that i i picked up on when i was a young boy i'd hear people talking about it and they say you know if you're, you're basically married to them and some have even taught that that if you if you were to be sexually unfaithful well you know you're married to them well that's actually not what the bible teaches Yes, the Bible does forbid sexual intercourse outside of the marriage covenant, but it doesn't equate sexual intercourse with the marriage covenant, which has implications both getting into marriage and out of marriage, as we'll see. Now, what we see from the Scripture and, and what Jesus is quoting, particularly from Genesis 2, 24, is that marriage is both a commitment, the biblical term here is covenant A promise between two parties that will not be broken is a commitment and a sexual consummation. This is what is meant by leaving and cleaving, becoming one flesh. Leaving and cleaving one's mother and father is, is not breaking off all relationship with one's parents, but it is no longer prioritizing that parental relationship Over the new family union, which is being created between this husband and wife, there is a new union, a one-flesh relationship, which is created when the husband and wife commit themselves to one another before God. And this new relationship is now the most primary relationship in their life. I often hear people say, and they they talk about their best friend as if that's somebody other than their spouse, and I usually know what they mean, but that shouldn't be the case. No, your best friend, your partner, your helper, is your spouse. There are no other best friends. Your spouse is your best friend. But that relationship is not primarily sexual in nature, although it includes that. As I said a few weeks ago as we were looking at Jesus' teaching on lust, sexual intimacy between a husband and his wife is actually an expression of a greater reality in their relationship. It's a regular but not constant expression of their union. It's an expression of their union together in commitment, It's an expression of their union together in purpose, in love, in mind, in service. It's a union and single-mindedness which characterizes their entire marriage. And the intimacy which they share is just a, 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 a moment expression of a greater reality that should be permeating that marriage. See, when the Bible talks about the one flesh relationship, yes, it includes that, but it's far more than that. Your oneness is not what takes place in the marriage bed. It's what happens outside the bed. And So marriage, Jesus teaches, is a wholesale commitment that I, if you're speaking to your spouse, I give you all of me. My love and my affection My respect and my protection, my assets and my interests, I yield everything to you. In essence, my life is inseparable from Sarah Sears. It's inseparable. You get one of us, you get both of us. And vice versa. The two are now one. And this covenantal commitment before God is then consummated, expressed through the sexual union. And so Jesus says, verse 6 of chapter 19, What God has joined together then, let not man separate. In other words, from the beginning, God's purpose in marriage is that it would be an unbreakable bond between a husband and his wife for their joy and good. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is that divorce has never been God's plan. That's what he's telling these Pharisees. Divorce is the destruction and breaking of God's design and purpose for his creatures. So you might be asking, okay, okay, if, that, if that's the case, why does God permit it? Why, why does he allow divorce in the first place? Well, this actually was the question they have for him in verse 7. Why then did Moses command one give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? If that's not part of God's plan. And Jesus' response basically is because of your sinful hearts. What does he mean by that? God recognizes that as we live in a Genesis 3 world, He recognizes our fallenness and our brokenness. And he has, in this case, made accommodations under certain circumstances. And so that leads us to the brokenness of marriage. Now, when I speak of the brokenness of marriage, don't hear me saying that marriage in and of itself is flawed and broken. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the two people who come into marriage are flawed and broken, right? Marriage is a good gift from God. But yet, it is sinful human beings like us who distort that gift, who break it. See, since Genesis 3 and the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve, our hearts, and we all know this, whether you're married or not, our hearts are skewed inwardly, aren't they? They're skewed inwardly, not to pour out towards another, They're skewed for ourselves. It's programmed in our our DNA to watch out for numero uno, me. And that's fundamentally a problem when you've got the two are now one. Now this doesn't mean that we're all as selfish and rebellious as we could be. But nevertheless, we know our hearts are desperately sick. They're, They're bent, they're skewed. as as one brother I heard teaching on this, said, no one's actually straight. We're all crooked. And he was playing on words there. No, no, no. Even if you pursue God's design in monogamous heterosexual marriage, you're still broken. And so when two sinners come together in the covenant of marriage... What's going to happen when two sinners come together? There's ongoing struggle, isn't there? Yes, yes, there's something that brought us together. But there's better be something more substantial than just, I think you're hot. Right? Or, or, or you can do for me. There, there's got to be something more or that thing's going to fall apart. It's going to be an ongoing struggle to truly consider others as more important than ourselves, which is what is required in marriage. Because we will always, and this is true even for the most healthiest of marriages, we always hold back something for our own interests. And the whole process of of learning to be married is actually learning to let go. And press in and give. However, the giving of oneself in marriage, I want you to listen, if you're snoozing, wake up. I'm not going to do Jarvis Williams on you, but just wake up, okay? (laughs) The giving of oneself in marriage expresses the great wonder of the gospel. Here's the wonder. You know when Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it? But whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it? How's that work? Yes, that's the irony of the gospel. Die and you will live. If you try to live, you will die. The same thing's true in your marriage, and that's not by accident. You want a healthy marriage, then die to yourself. Stop saying, oh, when my husband or my wife gets their problems fixed, then the problems are over. No, 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 no. Die to them. Assume you are the problem. Now, please do not take that in a 100% case. Generally, okay? I know there are exceptions, but we're talking about the norm here. If Jesus can wash Judas' feet, you can die to your spouse. And what often happens is I get nothing. You want me to just keep giving and giving and giving? I get nothing in return. Whoever will save his life will lose it. You want to save your marriage? Then die. Die to yourself. Die to your desires and serve and love and give yourself to them. You have all of me. And here's what will happen. If that spouse, especially for those of us who are believers, the Spirit of God dwells in that person, just as Christ's death was life-giving to us, so your death will be life-giving to them. And you know what? As they die to themselves in love of Christ and serving you, so it will give you life. But what happens in 100% of the cases is that both parties are insisting on their own. And they do not want to die to themselves. It's the end of you as an individual when you come together in marriage. And that is the ongoing struggle, isn't it? And the most healthy marriages in this church are those who are, not that they have become perfect or sinless, it's that they recognize that and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But is, there's is a gospel principle that is mirrored in, the, in marriage. And that's not by accident. It's also not by accident that Jesus discusses divorce right after he addressed lust. You can go back to chapter 5. It's not by accident. Because, really, lust is just the seed of the weed that is coming to kill your marriage. As one pastor eloquently writes, divorce normally happens when lust and lies have been allowed to grow up like weeds and choke the fragile, beautiful plant of marriage. Did you hear that? And so those lustful, selfish lusts that at one point, they, they seemed harmless. They're just inside my head. I'll just entertain them and, they, and, and, and no one will know. Or, or I'll just get on the computer and I'll do these things. Or I'll begin to admire that, that other person at work. All oh, that it seems so innocent and harmless, nothing's going to ever happen, has turned into a wildfire. And it's out of your control. And this is what why Jesus gets to his second phrase in verse 32 about divorce is permissible on the ground of sexual immorality. That word translated sexual immorality is, is the Greek term porneia. I typically don't share those things because that's of no use to you, but I think you, you can hear our root word for pornography in that word, right? Porneia, what, what is porneia? Well, here primarily, Jesus is talking about adultery, which involves sexual morality but it it also includes and in all forms of sexual immorality and and sexual immorality includes all sexual activity outside of the marriage bond all of it now notice unlike the jewish traditions here's even the conservative one jesus does not require divorce on the ground of sexual morality rather he merely permits it he leaves room for restoration that's what he's doing see the sinful heart of the pharisees which is the heart of their father the devil the heart of the unbeliever isn't how can i serve you how can i love you how can i redeem you how can i how can i give myself to you to make you whole No, the the sinful hearts of the Pharisees saw someone's failures. This would be generally true, but this is what they're saying about the marriage bond. Saw someone's failures as opportunity to satisfy their own lusts. If we can find some reason to get out of this deal, we will. It has nothing to do with because I love you and I want to give myself to you. It's you're a commodity to be used And I'm tired of you, and I found a better option. I need something to get me off the hook before God. And so they come up with these things like, well, if she spoils her dinner, I think that's the intent of the text. And and so I think that's permissible, and that's honorable in God's eyes. Send her away. Do you see how radically different Jesus is? No. No. Only on the grounds of pornea. Only on the grounds of pornea. Jesus prevents, or presents divorce as the last option. He permits divorce because such sin, if never repented of, can break the marriage covenant. We know this. Sin's ugly, isn't it? It always takes us further than we ever thought it would. And the evil one has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And, and Jesus recognizes that, that this particular sin it is, has devastating consequences. And it can wreak havoc on a marriage to such an extent that it's irreparable in this life. Now, I don't think that means, oh, uh, uh, one of the partners n- fell into sin, comes back, is remorseful, and, and seeking forgiveness. Nope. One and done. You're out of here. Well, no spouse who truly loves their spouse is going to do that. But it can come to such a point that, the, that one member never repents, just continues to go back to it over and over again. They have left you. They have left the marriage covenant. This is irreparable. The trust is broken. There, there's no going forward. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus doesn't go into it that, that explicitly, but the Apostle Paul does. And you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're not going to expound all this. But what I want you to see is that Paul is now taking the teachings of Jesus and applying it to real-life situations in a Gentile church in Corinth. Now, strangely, their problems are a little bit different than ours. They're thinking, I'm now married to Jesus. I'm now pursuing Jesus. Maybe I should divorce my unbelieving spouse so I can devote myself more to the Lord and, and a life of celibacy. That's not the case for Americans. I want to divorce my spouse so I can go do whatever I want. And, and Paul applies this to them. In and, and verses 10 and 11, you, you see this first element here. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. And all he's saying here is I'm handing down the tradition of, of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. The wife should not separate from her husband. Notice he flips it. Jesus talks about the husband separating from the wife. Paul flips it. Why is he doing that? Because it's wisdom. It's it's applied both ways. This isn't just limited to the husband, what Jesus says. This is applicable to both men and women. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. This should not be separated on on unlawful grounds. That's what he's saying. And if she does, then she should not remarry. And the same thing for the husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. But then he addresses another matter. And namely, what happens if the, the, the person divorces you? They leave you. Well, in verses 12 through 15, Paul goes on. And he says, to the rest I say, not I, or I, not the Lord. I'll unpack that in a minute. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. That's interesting how this person's now characterized. The person who lives in unrepentant sin shows themselves to be an unbeliever. And she consents to live with him. She should not divorce. So you have an unbelieving spouse. Now, this is in the pure sense. There's unbelieving marriages that, that make it. That's God's common grace. And he's just basically saying, just because you're, you, you came to Christ, you're, now your spouse has it, that doesn't mean you get out of the marriage. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. That's another sermon. Last sentence. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You're not bound to the marriage which I take to mean that you're free to remarry. I'll go into that some other time if you if you want to challenge me on that. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that if the guilty party leaves, you are not bound by the marriage covenant. You're free to remarry if you so desire. Now what Paul allows is an addition to, it seems to be an addition to what Jesus has already said. I thought it was just sexual immorality. Now it's, The other person just physically leaves, says, I'm done with you, out. Seems to go beyond merely sexual immorality, the principle, the grounds, if you will, for permissible divorce. And so the question is, what what amounts to abandonment? What Paul means when he says, I say, but not the Lord, isn't, this is my opinion, you could take it or leave it. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying there isn't any explicit, Jesus didn't explicitly say this but I'm an apostle and I'm giving you the right interpretation of what Jesus means. That's what he's getting after. Abandonment is not that much different than persistent sexual immorality. It really isn't. Both effectively express the severing of the marriage covenant through persistent sin of one of the marriage partners. And most of the time it's sexual immorality. Most of the time that divorce happens is, is because someone wants to be with someone else. That's, that's usually the case. They're not much different. Yeah, you can think of other means, and I, I think that, that wisdom principle that Paul's applying here, and it, in this case, it's, hey, you're a Christian, you're a wacko. I don't want to be married. I'm, I'm, I love my pagan gods. I'm out of here. It's the same result. They're ending the marriage covenant, so they're out. And he's saying, in light of this fallen world, in light of the brokenness of human beings, there's provision. This doesn't mean it's good, doesn't mean it's to be celebrated, it's to be mourned over, but, but you aren't enslaved. There's freedom here, Jesus is teaching. And I think this principle could be applied to physical abuse in the home, drug abuse, and any other perverse, pervasive sin which dissolves the marriage covenant. That takes wisdom, and that takes the church community. And So I want to place a little bit of biblical boundaries for how we determine whether a marriage has come to this point because oftentimes, and again, you can find the 1% exception. Put that one to the side. The normal cases are that divorce happens way too soon. So how do you know? What, What are some boundaries here? Well, first... If illegal activity is occurring, such as physical violence, then the proper authorities must be called. They must be. And I want you to hear this. If you are in that situation and you come to us, we're going to call the police. We're going to. There, there is no exceptions. And we will act to help protect Usually this is the case of a woman and children. We will make the proper moves to protect till proper due process can be done to find out what's going on. We're going to take the safe side. Second, the principles of dealing with sin stipulated in Matthew 18 must be followed. And so let's just do it in the more normal sense of of one is is having an adulterous relationship. Well, if they repent, then we won our brother over. Right? This isn't, oh, I get out of this one. But if they, they do not repent, then we, we take two or three witnesses and we're appealing the whole time. Come back. Here's what repentance looks like. Come back to your family. And if they do not listen to them, then we, we take it to the church. And the whole church is saying, do not forsake your marriage covenant. Do not forsake the Lord in this. And together, as a church, we seek restoration. And what is restoration? Well, third, it means that that all options for restoration have been pursued. And if they come up empty, and that's going to look like one party saying, I don't want this. After that, then divorce is permissible. That, that's, that's the plan. That's what Jesus, that's what the scriptures are teaching. Now, coming back to Jesus' words in Matthew 5:32, apart from breaking of the marriage covenant by one spouse, he says divorce is not permissible. It effectively, and notice, look at what he says: he says something very peculiar. You make her commit adultery. What is he saying? He's not saying, and I want to bring some comfort here, if you've, you've sinned in this way and, or you've been abandoned or someone had divorced you and now you're remarried, you're not in a perpetual state of adultery. But I think what he's getting at here is that if you divorce your spouse unlawfully, you put them in a position that they now have to go against their covenant. They love you. And now they have to teach their heart not to love you that way anymore. And in this case, you hurt someone. You're damaging them. This cannot be God's will. God, Jesus, has come to give you life. And life abundantly. You're taking the life of your spouse. Ripping their heart and smashing it. And then this other phrase, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery... I think the tenor of this is you're, you're, partic- you're partaking in the destruction of one marriage to get your own another marriage that you're you are in adultery that is adultery I know I don't have much time but I'm going to take it because we need good news especially if you have been divorced or you've experienced that what should you do if you've been divorced and remarried and I know that's, that's the case for some of you here. I want you to know, first of all, the divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. It is sin, but it's, there's only one unforgivable sin. That's denying Christ and rejecting him. And the beautiful thing is that marriage is not ultimately about us. Marriage points to a greater reality in the union of Christ. And so there's, there's hope, there's grace, there's mercy from our Lord. And so I want to consider, finally, the beauty of marriage. Just with all of our sin, whatever it is, just think about it, we must confess it, seek forgiveness, and pursue restoration as far as possible. That's our our duty. And in the case of divorce, if if you or your ex-spouse has not remarried, then repentance, and again, I understand there's some, assuming the grounds aren't here, repentance looks like, bringing that marriage together. I think I have liberty to say this. You should talk to Mike and Susan Callahan, who divorced, came to know Jesus, and said, we got to make this right, and they came back. And they're faithful servants here in this church. That's a beautiful picture of this. But if either one has remarried, even if you divorce under, under unlawful grounds, and then you go and remarry, you then restore the relationship to the best possible. That doesn't mean you divorce that spouse to go make this one right. It is as it is. It's Deuteronomy 24, what Moses was talking about. You don't go back. And you are to, to the best of your ability, pursue forgiveness. I wronged you. But obviously you can't fully make that one right. And I want you to know that, yo, know, though that's sad, that's, 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 that grieves both parties, it grieves God, You're not in a persistent state of sin if you've truly repented. There's freedom. There's grace. There's beauty in that. But now your mindset's changed if you know Christ. And this is true whether you're single now and you aspire to be married or you're widowed and you long for your spouse. You have a new mindset in Christ. Namely, you no longer view marriage, and I would encourage all of us, This includes me and my wife, Sarah. We talked about this this week. You no longer view marriage as the ultimate source of your identity or your satisfaction. You now have your ultimate identity and satisfaction in a greater union. See, if you place your ultimate identity and satisfaction in your marriage, you will never be satisfied. You'll never be. You'll be severely disappointed. Because as as great as I am, Sarah, Sarah married up. No, just kidding. As great as I am, I'm still a sinner. And she knows it better than any of you. And she loves me. Because she loves Jesus. And because he satisfies her soul. In a way I never will. In a way I never will. And my goal for her is to serve her in such a way that she finds her greatest satisfaction not in me but in Him, and then vice versa. She serves me by seeking to, to, ensure, to best of her ability, encourage me to find my greatest satisfaction, identity in Him, and in so doing, we both love each other as Christ intended. That's the beauty of marriage. And if you are to put that expectation on a marriage that you hope to have, that dream person you've, you've got in your head, well, then you, when you find a marriage, you're going to be severely disappointed. And, and number two, you're going to put undue expectation on them and pressure that they could never meet up to. Rather, the marriage bond ultimately points to our marriage with Christ, Ephesians Ephesians 5.32. If you're a follower of Jesus, He is your identity, and He is your ultimate satisfaction. Because unlike anyone else, no human being who's ever lived besides Jesus Christ, He'll love you perfectly. He's given Himself. He's given you His all. He's given His life for you. He has died on the cross for you to purchase you as His bride. Now, all that is his is yours. And this marriage bond can never be broken, not even by death. That's the difference. It's a greater marriage, right? Our bonds of marriage, they perish when we die, but not this one. It becomes sight. And so, as the Apostle Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other thing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? so the beauty of marriage, brothers and sisters, is not the one before your eyes. But it's Christ, the true bridegroom, and the one who's coming to receive us to himself. And the most beautiful and satisfying marriages on earth are the ones that now rest in that union. Because those who know Jesus are now freed from their sinful, selfish hearts to selflessly give themselves to each other just as Christ has done for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and and we will sing one closing song, okay? Thank you, Jesus, for loving us with a perfect love. And Lord, even when we are faithless, Lord, you are faithful. And you have purchased us. And you have washed us clean from all of our sin. And you have given us a new name and new garments and a new home and a new family. You brought us into your family. And Lord, I pray specifically for those in our church who have experienced the brokenness of marriage. And, Lord, that you would comfort them in the truth of the gospel and their identity and where their true satisfaction lies. And that that if they're in Christ and they have truly turned and and sought to honor you from this day forth, Lord, you are pleased with them. And, Lord, for anyone here who does not know you and and maybe sees their own brokenness in other ways, Lord, I I pray that they see your beauty and your life-giving grace in the gospel, And Lord, that you would open up their eyes, you would open up their heart and make them receptive to these truths and that they would find life and find it abundantly. Lord, that they would see that you make our hearts and our, our minds pure and white as snow. You make us pure in heart so that we may see you. And so Jesus, we long for your return. We long for the day of the marriage feast of the Lamb, when you will come and you will take us to ourselves and we'll be one with you and we will share all things with you in a way that we long for and anticipate even now. And so it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.